You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. Jesus of Nazareth was a master teacher, and some of his most well-known teachings are told in short stories called parables. Yeah, like the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who was looking for pearls, and when he found the ultimate pearl, he sold everything so that he could buy it. Must have been some pretty amazing pearl. Or the kingdom of God is like a tiny mustard seed that a farmer planted in his garden. It grew and became a huge tree, and birds came to perch in its branches. And that's a beautiful image, but... What does it mean? Exactly. Jesus didn't tell parables to make everything clear. Rather, he wanted to provoke the imagination and invite people to see what God is doing in the world from a new perspective. So let's talk about how to read the parables of Jesus. Now, there's many great teachers that throughout history have used stories to teach students about morality, religion, philosophy. But Jesus didn't use his parables to teach abstract religious or moral ideals. He said that his parables were about himself and his mission. His mission, which was to announce that the kingdom of God was arriving on earth as it is in heaven. Right. So in Jesus' day, the Israelites were ruled by the Roman Empire. But their scriptures promised that one day their God would come to rule his people as king. And so many Israelites wanted to revolt against Rome and fight for their freedom. And this is what some people thought of as the kingdom of God. Exactly. But Jesus was a poor traveling prophet, healing the sick, inviting people to follow him. And he said that this was the arrival of God's kingdom. And that didn't fit people's expectations. Right. And so Jesus used some parables to help people imagine that his small movement was the arrival of God's kingdom. Oh yeah, like the parable that the kingdom of God is yeast hidden in a lump of dough. And you might not see its influence, but it's going to change everything. Jesus also told parables about the upside down values of God's kingdom, about how the least important people in the world are actually the most important people to God, especially those who are poor and of low status. Yeah, like the parable about the business owner who hired workers throughout the day, in the morning, later in the day, and even towards the end of the day. And when it was time to pay everyone, he paid them all the same wage. Right. Jesus is showing how money and status are irrelevant to God, who offers his generous mercy to everybody. Now, not all of the parables have happy endings. Some are really intense. Yes, Jesus stood in the tradition of Israel's prophets, who also told parables to criticize Israel's leaders because they mistook their kingdom for God's. So Jesus warned the leaders of his day, if they don't accept his offer of God's kingdom, they're headed for destruction. Yeah, like the parable of the landowner who built a wonderful vineyard and he expects it to produce fruit. Yes, Jesus gets this parable from the prophet Isaiah, but then he adapts it. Right, and so the landowner appoints managers to take care of this vineyard. And at harvest, he sends servants to collect the fruit but those managers kill the servants. And so the landowner sends his own son to confront the managers and they kill him too. And so Jesus asked the people around him, what do you all think this landowner should do? Oh, he's gonna punish those managers and hire new ones. Jesus knew that if Israel kept on their current path, they would be destroyed by Rome. And so in parables like this, he's forcing people to make a decision about his offer of God's kingdom. Are people going to reject him, ignore him, or trust and follow him? Now, if this message of God's kingdom is so important, 
Why cloak it in parables? Why not be more clear? Well, through riddles and parables, Jesus could make really bold claims that revealed truth to people who were open-minded. For those who have ears to hear, they could ponder it and go deeper. But the parables would also conceal his message from those who were against him so that he could buy more time. Buy time for what? Well, Jesus was preparing his closest followers for the greatest surprise yet. Jesus claimed that Israel's God was coming to rule over his people not through coercion or violent force, but through self-giving love as he was going to die for their sins. But his death wasn't the end. Right. He said that his death would be like a tiny seed buried in the ground, but then it would grow and produce a crop with many seeds. So these parables, they explain who Jesus was and what he was up to. And the gospel authors have preserved these parables so that now every generation of Jesus' followers can read and ponder them. And imagine how God's kingdom is still at work even today. Right. These ancient parables are still full of new surprises and challenges. They're like a storehouse packed with treasures, some that are new, some that are old, and it's all just waiting to be discovered. Well, what I find uh, funny about this video is it talks about how parables are cloaked in mystery and riddles so that we are forced to really dig into it so that for thousands of years we can pour over these mysteries that Jesus taught. And then I get up here and I'm supposed to just explain them really simply and then we can all go home, right? Which just would then defeat the purpose of the parables. But that's what we're doing this morning. That's uh, where we're at. So uh, if you want to open your Bibles, we're in Mark. We're in Mark chapter uh, four, which the parables, Mark doesn't use a lot of parables. Mark's book, as we've talked before, it's a book of action. That word immediately happens a bunch in the book of Mark. He doesn't have time for long discourse of teaching. And so Mark only gives us about four, maybe six major parables in his book. And three of them happen right here in Mark chapter four, which Matt mentioned a few weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the sower. And so right after that, we pick back up in the parables and Jesus continues and he's sort of drawn aside with his disciples and he's talking about these parables. But we have to be careful when we think of what the parables are. We have to be careful that we don't confuse them for other stories. They're not fables, which is something that video pointed out. They don't contain some like moral of good and bad for us to live by. We can find those things in it. But the point of the, the parables is not to give us some like quippy morals to live by. It's to show us hidden truths about the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Every one of the parables that Jesus taught is about the kingdom. And yes, there's stuff we can draw about ourselves from it. We can see God's love in it. But almost always he talks in the parables of the kingdom. He'll say, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? Or the kingdom of God is like, and then he launches into a parable. And so the kingdom is the most important part of the parables. And also it was the most major part of Jesus's ministry. It's the most prominent theme in the gospels is the kingdom of God. If you were to look at it, it's the first words. When we get in the book of Mark, the first words Jesus utters is about the kingdom. In Mark 1.15, he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. These are Jesus's first words in this book on the scene. If you, if you want to ask, like, well, what is talked about most? What is his most common theme or what is the most popular theme in the gospels? You might think like, ah, it could be love or forgiveness. It's not. It's the kingdom. Forgiveness comes up 40 times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Love comes up 70 times, but the kingdom of God comes up 120 times. 
So the kingdom of God is Jesus's major theme. It's the most important thing that he wants to talk about. But the problem for us is that we don't live in a society of kingdoms, right? And we get confused about what a kingdom is. And yet we're weirdly fascinated with this idea of kingdoms, right? We tend to think of like castles and and crowns, like that's our thought of a kingdom. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. And you kind of see like our fascination with this idea of kingdoms because it's so foreign to us. Anytime something happens in the UK with the royal family, right, which recently we had, uh, Prince Philip died. And so everybody, that's all everybody's talking about, which I'll be honest, like I kind of, I thought, I didn't know the queen was married, okay? Like I thought like the king had already died a long time ago and that's why there was just a queen. I didn't know Prince Philip was a thing, like, but he is and now he's dead and I'm sorry, you know, I, I should have paid better attention, I guess, like the guy's the Duke of, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's Ellington. He's the Duke of Ellington and he, he died. But we get fascinated with this stuff, but we only understand it a little bit, right? That Oprah interview with the other royal couple, it ranked in more viewership in one night than all of March Madness did for the whole month of March. We're fascinated with this idea of kingdoms, but we don't fully understand it. And then what Jesus comes in to talk about is not the kind of kingdom that we expect. It's not the kind of kingdom that we would recognize. The kingdom of God is not a kingdom of borders and flags. It's not a kingdom with, with a castle like we would think of. It's not a kingdom with a throne. Instead, we hear that the kingdom of God is something totally different. That the kingdom of God wasn't ushered in with like a big golden throne like we would think of, but it was ushered in with the throne of the cross. And it wasn't a crown of gold, it was a crown of thorns. That's what our kingdom is about. That was the kind of kingdom that Jesus was coming to establish, where the king, the ruler, gave up for his people. And he establishes all of these upside down values. And so then when Jesus launches into these parables about the kingdom, many of his listeners don't get it. And we see that with the parable of the sower. Nobody got it. In fact, it seems like the scribes and Pharisees and other people listening didn't get it. And then the disciples, when they're back with Jesus later on by themselves, they're like, Jesus, what was that about? Like they have no idea what he is talking about. And so in Mark 4.10, it opens up, it says, when he was alone, with those around him with the 12, so it's not just the 12, it's the other followers with him, possibly some of the women we read about at the tomb and other places in the New Testament, but it says, those with him in the 12, they asked him about the parables. And he said to them, you, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So intentionally, Jesus is cloaking what he's talking about in mystery. And some will get it and some will not get it, depending on their stance with God, depending on their views of the kingdom. So as he goes on further, he tells them another parable. And it's kind of a parable about mystery. He says in Mark 4, 21, um, he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears, let him hear. Jesus is bringing light, but some people don't have the ears to hear it. Some people are trying to put that light under a basket or hide it under a bed. He continues in verse 24, he says, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you used, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. He's saying, if you're open to the message of Jesus, you're gonna receive more. 
If you have the ears to hear it, not only are you going to receive Jesus' words, but the blessing that comes with that, the future that comes with that. But if you're closed to that message, if you don't have the ears to hear, more is going to be taken from you. And we know with that, we saw in the video some of the destruction that would come for those that didn't listen to Jesus. So then he continues, okay, we're just trucking on through verse 26. He said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We're back to these planting metaphors. He sleeps and he rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. I love that line we get right there. He knows not how. I mean, that's me, right? You can tell me all about photosynthesis and how plants grow and things. To me, it's just a mystery. And Jesus is showing us right here, the kingdom is a mystery. To many, they can't hear it. It's a mystery. So we have to figure out what is this mysterious kingdom? And I think to understand it better, to understand the kingdom of God better, we have to go through our Old Testament history, which I know sounds boring, but hopefully it won't be. We have to look at the kingdom language, which is all throughout the Bible. In fact, on the first pages of history in Genesis chapter one, we hear this kingdom language. Genesis chapter one, God has created Adam and Eve. It says he blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Fill the earth and rule it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So right there in the first pages, we have this kind of kingdom language. God has set them up to be rulers on the earth that he created, rulers with God. It's like they're the Barney Fife to his Andy Griffin, right? Like his, how it's working. And so here we have this set up in the Garden of Eden, but then the serpent comes in. And the serpent says, all right, you've got the king and the king put up these rules for you. And he's like, what are these rules? They're like, well, we're not supposed to eat of this tree or we'll die. And the serpent says, well, surely you won't die. He's telling you this because he knows if you eat of that, you'll become like God. And so Adam and Eve eat of the fruit because they want to be like God. They want that rule for themselves. And so right there early on, we have the king. We have those that are ruled and we have his reign, we have his rules. The kingdom is always broken down in this kind of three-part system. You have the ruler, you have the ruled, the people that are being ruled, and then you have the rules, which is the reign of the king and the system he sets up. And right here we hear that Adam and Eve, they couldn't, they couldn't go with the rules. And so they broke the rules because they wanted to be the ruler. And as we fast forward throughout history, we see in the Old Testament, this happens over and over again in Exodus after the Israelites have been delivered out of Egypt through the sea. God says, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. He's once again setting up himself over a people. He's called out a people. We've got the king. We've got the people ruled. And then he sets up his commandments, his reign. And he says, here's what you got to do to be a part of my kingdom. I want you to not worship any other gods. I want you to do these things, eat these certain foods, not these foods. We have the Ten Commandments, all of that stuff. But then what happens? Israel camping out in the desert as God is giving them like magic food every morning, manna on the ground. As in the daytime, they have this huge cloud that leads them. And at night, a pillar of fire that goes before them. Israel looks at all this and they're like, mm, I don't like it. They're like, I want to go back to Egypt. They reject God's rule. And they say, better, better than Egypt, let's just build our own God. Let's have this golden calf. And we see a pattern. Israel over and over again rejects the reign of God saying, I think I know what's better. 
I know you can give me magic food on the ground, but I'm kind of tired of that food. They reject God's reign because they want to be in charge of themselves. We see this again as we fast forward to 1 Samuel, right before we get to the, the time of the kings in Israel. And here Israel has demanded of Samuel. They don't have a king at this time. They're like, we want a king because we want to be like everybody else. And Samuel goes to God and he talks to God about this. And he says, God replies to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. He says, they've not rejected you, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see this cycle of God calling a people out to be their king, but then they reject his rule. And we see this pattern, I think, not just in the Old Testament and the nation of Israel, but we see it all over history. We see it maybe even in our own lives, places where we have rejected God as our king and said, no, I think I can do better. I want to do this thing. That's what I want to do. I want to be in charge of this. We reject God's rule because we don't get it. Like the scribes and the Pharisees, we don't get it. We don't get this establishment of a kingdom. You know who does get it really well? Bees. Bees really get kingdom. Have you ever studied bees, right? Like, and I think, you know, the crowd's probably pretty divided on bees. I have changed my mind on bees. When I grew up, bees were the enemy, right? I mean, because you want to avoid them. They're going to sting you. Your hand's going to swell up. It's an awful thing. You don't want to mess with bees. But now we've all kind of changed our opinion. We're like, oh, bees do more. They pollinate our flowers like they're the heroes of our world. Without the bees, we won't have the flowers. Bees understand a kingdom. Every colony of bees has a queen, right? And they follow this queen. You can go down a weird hole on YouTube, which I have done, watching bee videos. And you can watch these people that are hired to go and like wipe out a big colony of bees or like get rid of a colony of bees and they'll peel off like siding or they'll pull up like the porch boards and there's just bees everywhere. And I'm like, I'd be number one with wasp spray, right? Like I'd be spraying the, get them, just kill them. Like probably after I threw rocks at it to make them angry because that's what I would do with bees. But these other people, these experts go in and they know how to handle it. So they have on their like bee hazmat suit and they go and they find the queen bee and they'll put her in this little clip and then they'll move that clip into a box and then slowly all of the other bees follow because they understand you follow the queen, they understand the order and the rule, and they're not trying to be queen. They've all got their parts in their colony, their parts in their kingdom. You've got your worker bees that go out and they work and pollinate and all this stuff. You've got your drone bees that take care of the queen. Then you have even, I read this, you have temperature control bees. Their only job in life is just to control the temperature of the hive. And it's, if it's really hot, they start beating their wings really fast to try and fan everybody out. They understand and they're not fighting. They're not like, I don't want to control temperature anymore. I want to be the queen. Bees get it. They follow the queen. They understand how a kingdom is supposed to work. So then we see all throughout the Old Testament, God's people don't get it. They reject God. They reject his kingdom. Then we get to the New Testament and we see Jesus once again calling a people just as God had called Adam and Eve, just as he had called Abraham and Israel to follow him, we see Jesus calling a people, the disciples, his followers. And we see this being set up again as a kingdom with a, with a ruler, with those who are ruled and with the rules. But some people don't get it. And so that's where we get our other parables. In verse 30, we see this, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or for what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all, all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that even the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. 
Now, when Jesus' hearers would have heard this, if they're listening, if they've got the ears to hear, they're probably going to really understand two things that would be lost on us. And the first would just be the idea of a mustard seed. They would deal with mustard seeds in their society. They would see mustard plants growing around. We don't get it. We don't quite have a concept of what that is. We just know it's a very small seed. In fact, I brought one today. Can you guys see that? Oh, I've lost it. Like, I don't know where it is. Mustard seed somewhere around. That's one of my favorite jokes. I do it every time. Gets about the same response. I have no seed because it's really tiny. But that was the idea with a mustard seed. is the tiniest of seeds, yet it would grow into these huge plants. And so the people hearing this would understand that idea. So Jesus is saying here that he's starting a new kingdom. And it's starting small with him. And then a couple of fishermen. And then a lady who is demon-possessed. And then a whole group of other followers that were hungry, people that needed to be healed in this kingdom start small, but then it begins to grow and grow into this huge tree, which is another thing that Jewish hearers would have recognized. They would have heard this idea of tree and they would have understood kingdom talk because this was a common expression for a kingdom back then. You would have a kingdom that would rule and it'd be compared to a tree and then the other kingdoms that would be ruled over would be like the birds and the nests that would come in the tree. People that are really, like, really listening, really had the ears to hear, they'd probably hear the words of the prophet Ezekiel, who spoke to Israel, who's, who prophesied for God during the time of their exile, where after Israel had rejected God one too many times, God said, okay, then you're kicked out of your land. And then they're ruled under foreign nations. And God says this to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 17. It says, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that, I may, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and I make the high tree low. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken and I will do it. Again, this is a prophecy to Israel when they're in exile. And here as we read through this and we know Jesus is coming and all that he established, I think we get to see it differently than maybe the scribes and the Pharisees would have seen it. The scribes and the Pharisees thought that Israel was gonna be that tree, right? But if you really pay attention to what Ezekiel says, he says, a twig planted in Israel will be that tree that then birds come and nest in. It's not Israel itself. It's just located in Israel. I think the twig Ezekiel is talking about is that shoot off of the tree of Jesse, which if we trace back Jesus's line all the way to Jesse, the father of David, way back when we see that coming from that line is this little twig, Jesus, who's then planted in Israel. I think the twig that comes into a tree is the cross on Golgotha. That twig planted on a hill is Jesus's cross. And so people that really got it, were really hearing, would hear all this analogy and see that Jesus has come to establish a kingdom. And then all of his instructions, that's the rule of that kingdom, right? Everywhere where Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, but not just your neighbor, love your enemy as well. If somebody asks this of you, give them that also. As Jesus is talking about selling your goods and giving to the poor, this is the rule, this is the reign of the kingdom that Jesus is setting up. 
Just like the language at the end of that prophecy in Ezekiel, he's going to make the green trees dry up and the dry trees, he's going to bring them life. The high and mighty trees, he's going to bring low. And then the low trees, he's going to elevate. And then we hear about him talking in his rule about his kingdom, saying, if you want to enter into my kingdom, you got to be like a child. We got to be low. It's the humble that are elevated. The ones that elevate themselves, they will be brought low. So Jesus talks about this kingdom that is an upside down kingdom that is foreign to everything that we see or would think of as a kingdom and often foreign to everything we go after for the kingdom that we want to be a part of. And so some people looking at this kingdom, they just couldn't see it. They didn't have the ears to hear it. And so they missed out on God's kingdom. They miss out on this kingdom, this upside down rule. And so here, just in this little bit that we see, if you, if you want to dial it back to the parable of the sower, we can hear those that are the rocky ground, man, they're, they're rejecting the kingdom. But we can hear those that grow up, they're accepting Jesus's words. And they're hearing here in these other parables that he talks about that the kingdom is mysterious. It's going to be confusing. It's different from what we would recognize as a kingdom. But also, this kingdom Jesus is establishing, it is worth everything. Like the parables he tells in Matthew 13, where a guy finds a treasure in a field, and so he goes and sells everything he has, so he has money to buy that field. Jesus is saying the kingdom is worth everything that you've got. But also we hear Jesus saying that to be a part of this kingdom, we have to give up everything we've got. We have to take up our cross give up our life and follow him. That's what it means to be a part of Jesus's kingdom. We hear that not only does it require everything, but it's gonna have a different rule that we're not gonna recognize that you enter it like a child and it's the humble that will be elevated and the elevated will be made low, which is totally counterculture to us. We hear that this kingdom is gonna be like a lamp on a stand. And though some people have tried to hide it, it will always shine out. So we know this kingdom is to give light to other people, not just to us, but to others. And we hear that this kingdom, like a huge tree, provides a home. That in this home, in this tree, in this kingdom, we will find light, we will find life, we will find a place that we belong. That's what God wants to provide for you and for I in his kingdom. His kingdom that started as Jesus walked on the scene and continues even this day and will finally be fulfilled when Jesus returns. And we all get to enter with him in eternity. That is the kingdom that Jesus was talking about in these parables. That's the kingdom he established. And it's the kingdom he invites you and he invites me to be a part of. If we can break that pattern where we say, man, I see what God wants, but I want this other thing. And we reject it. But instead we say, I see this kingdom that God has for me. And I know it's better than anything this earth offers because I've tried it. Because I've tried that pattern where I tried to do it by my rules, by what I wanted, and it fell apart on me. So I'm ready to give everything up and follow Jesus as my king and become a part of his kingdom. I can't help but hear in this story, a story from the Lord of the Rings 
which you guys know me, I'm a bit of a Lord of the Rings nerd. You've heard me talk about this many times. Some of you probably just inwardly groaned, just like, oh, great. But there's a scene in the Lord of the Rings where one of these little hobbits, his name's Pippin, one of these little hobbits has, has made his way all throughout this big journey. They're trying to destroy a ring, and he's not the one destroying it, but he's on his way with Gandalf to this big city uh, called, oh, I can't even think of what the city's name. It doesn't matter. Um, but uh, he's off to this big city. And there, Gandalf brings him into this like big like palace, and they're gonna go meet the they're gonna go meet the steward of this palace, the guy that's in charge. He's not a king, but he's just below the king, waiting for the day when the king would return. And Gandalf is with Pippin, and they're about to walk in the halls of this huge palace. And Pippin is a hobbit, right? Like he doesn't get like they don't have kings in Hobbiton. Like they got hills with holes and like just happy dancing, like and a lot of like food. Like that's what they have in Hobbiton. But now he's entering into this palace, into this castle, and he is just struck by it. But before they go in, Gandalf's like, hey, Pippin, don't say a word. You're just going to say something stupid, like, don't mess this up for me. And so they go in to meet this guy named Denethor, and as Pippin is walking in, he is just struck by this kingdom. And immediately he bows and swears fealty to Denethor. And Gandalf's just rolling his eyes like, I told you not to say anything. But he's so impressed with this kingdom. Which I think is sometimes us, right? We get so impressed with the flashy idea of a kingdom, with the kingdom that is presented to us on earth. The kingdom of wealth, the kingdom of greed, the kingdom of, of following our pleasures, the kingdom of deciding to do what I want to do. We get swept up with that and we're like, that's what I want. I'm going to swear fealty to that kingdom. I'm going to get on my knees for that kingdom, the kingdom of me. But then instead, Jesus comes and he offers us another kingdom, the kingdom not of me, but the kingdom of God. The kingdom not of my way, but the kingdom of Yahweh. Sorry, I had, had to. But so we get this with Pippin. He, he swears fealty to Denethor, who's not the real king. There's another person who's supposed to be the king. And we come to find out that Denethor is insane, that he's been corrupted by evil. And he tries to just, oh, the whole story goes crazy. He tries to burn his son who's just sick, but he's saying he's dead. And then Denethor even tries to kill himself. And Pippin snaps out of it and he sees it and he runs and he tells Gandalf and all this stuff. And Pippin realizes he started following the wrong kingdom. And then we come to find out that there's another king on the way. There's a true king, Aragorn. And though he doesn't look like a king, he's been out fighting battles. He's been out sleeping and camping. He's all muddy. He's not what they would think a king would look like, but we find out that he is the true king. And he is the one that then comes to bring the high low and the low high. And we get that ending scene where these little hobbits are escalated. The humble are brought high. It's such a great analogy for the decision we have. Are we going to follow the kingdom of the world? the kingdom of me, the kingdom of my way, or are we going to follow the kingdom of God? Knowing that there's greed and there's wealth and there's maybe great things in this one kingdom, but we know there's better things, there's eternal things in this other kingdom. And so this morning, that's what I want to invite you to hear from Jesus's parables, from his message of the kingdom, is that we have a choice. Will we follow self, fall into the pattern that Adam and Eve fell into, that Israel fell into, or will we follow Jesus? And even though it means giving up everything, it means that we get eternity in the meantime. It means that we get to, as Matthew 13, 43 says, as Jesus says, he says, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This morning, I invite you to join the kingdom of God. 
I invite you to toss away the kingdom of self and find the blessing and eternity that lies only through a relationship with Jesus. So let us pray. And then my prayer for you is that in this last song, that we would get the ears to hear, that you would hear the voice of Jesus, your King. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you have provided not just a home for us, but a kingdom for us. That you've provided us, your son, his example, someone that we can follow. And that in it, in that kingdom, God, we can find light and we can find life. And so I pray this morning you would reveal to us the kingdom that we are chasing after. God, if we're trying to go after our own rule, try and decide that we know what is best for us, God, I pray that you would reveal that to us. And instead, God, let us see clearly that your son has something so much better to offer than we can imagine. And so God, this morning in this last song, I pray that you would give us ears to hear. The ears to hear your voice, the eyes to see your son and the forgiveness he holds for us. And I pray, God, that we would decide to join your kingdom, a kingdom that does not end. It's in Jesus' name we pray.